Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Eva Parker, Assistant Professor of Dermatology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, also known as the VUMC in Nashville, Tennessee, which is, of course, home to the Grand Ole Opry. There, she's also a member of the core faculty in the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society. Eva was educated at the University of Denver in Colorado, where she majored in environmental science, and we'll hear about her minor in a minute. She continued her training at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora, where she graduated with a doctorate in medicine. Eva always appears to be learning, having graduated from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, with a diploma just last year. Eva practices general and complex medical, inpatient, and cosmetic dermatology with further academic interests in global health, HIV dermatoses, tropical skin disease, and infectious disease dermatology. She also puts her environmental science degree to good use with her interest in the health effects secondary to climate change, and we'll be talking about that. When not working, Eva volunteers at Siloam Health and Share Tree Clinic, both in Nashville, where she provides dermatologic care to immigrant, refugee, and underserved populations. She also volunteers for Addis Clinic, where she provides telehealth consultations and has taught in resource-limited settings. Eva's an author and has presented at regional, national, and international meetings of the dermatologic effects of climate change and is an advocate for climate justice and healthcare sustainability. However, her passion for justice doesn't stop at climate change. She's also the faculty lead for diversity, equality, and inclusion in her department at the VUMC. Eva tells me that she loves to garden, and because she minored in geology at university, she has a hobby which she describes as a wee bit nerdy, collecting rock and sand, She tells me that she doesn't have any rock or sand from Britain. We'll have to correct that in due course. Professor Eva Parker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me and for that very warm introduction. Well, it's it's deserved. The only issue I had is there was so much I could have said. So I'll tell you what, let's start with a meaty topic. News of climate change has moved from the fringes to the front pages, thank goodness, And there's been less bleating from the climate change deniers. You give a lot of lectures and have presented around the world on the effect of climate change on dermatology. At the 2021 virtual meeting, you discuss rising rates of skin cancer, presumably attributed to climate change or ozone uh, layer depletion. Talk to us about that and other ways that climate change affects the skin. This is such a critical topic, so thank you, Jonathan, for broaching it. Because the skin is such a large organ and it is the primary interface with our environment, many cutaneous diseases are climate sensitive. Skin cancer is just one of them. Because of human activity, we are seeing unprecedented global warming, massive amounts of air pollution, destruction of the stratospheric ozone layer, and that's increasing UV radiation. All of these factors contribute to skin cancer. But importantly, the impacts of climate change are multifactorial, and we are also seeing rising temperatures, extreme weather events, wildfire smoke, and air pollution contributing to other primary dermatologic diseases 
and cutaneous manifestations of systemic disease, including autoinflammatory processes like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, and pemphigus, as well as vector-borne diseases, allergic diseases, and nutritional deficiencies, to name just a few. Wow. So let's go back to skin cancer. Years ago, actually, when I was visiting Australia doing an elective, the Australians who have, or at least had, high rates of melanoma, basal cell and squamous cancers came up with a neat slogan to try and head off cancers. I think it was slip, slip, slap, slop, slide, slip on a shirt. And I hope I get this in the right order. Slip on a shirt, slap on a hat, slop on some sunscreen and slide on sunglasses. My goodness, there's a lot of alliteration there. (laughs) What are you and your colleagues doing to encourage people to take skin cancer seriously? Well, I I don't think we have such a a clever slogan. It certainly is catchy, but I will say the American Academy of Dermatology has a number of resources for patients and frequent public service campaigns promoting sun safety, as well as a free skin cancer screening program that facilitates community gatherings where skin cancer screenings can be done at no charge. I know for me in my own practice, I try to model behavior and I'll sometimes even show patients photos of me at the beach completely covered in sun protective clothing. But I do find the hardest part is undoing the notion that being tan is healthy or even looks good. And so I'm constantly encouraging my patients to avoid sun, use broad brimmed hats and sun protective clothing and reapply sunscreen every 90 minutes. And I really encourage them to remember that UV exposure occurs year round, even in the winter and on cloudy days, as well as through our car windows when we drive. Yeah. Um, I know I I fly airplanes as an application and um, pilots have a very high incidence of skin cancer, whether that's because they're sort of outdoorsy types or because they're at altitude. And I, I seem to remember reading somewhere you know, you fly an airplane from the left seat, that it tends to be the left arm and the left side of the face that gets um, a higher incidence of cancer. So, yeah, it's it's serious stuff. So you play an integral role at the American Academy of Dermatology, the AAD, the expert resource group on climate change and environmental affairs. Tell us about the group. What are its goals and that you've achieved and what do you want to achieve? What's next? So the Expert Resource Group on Climate and Environmental Affairs is a group of like-minded individuals who care about impacts of climate change on dermatology and not only dermatologic disease, but also the practice of dermatology and how it impacts the health sector. And the mission of our group is really to enhance care by developing a community of expertise on environmental insults to to skin health and emerging diseases that are related to climate change. We also advise and promote policies that reduce the carbon footprint, both within the American Academy of Dermatology, as well as dermatology practices and hospitals nationwide. And we promote research into the dermatologic impacts of climate change and environmental degradation, Um, looking at environmental consequences of how we deliver our care and the environmental impacts of medications and personal skincare products. Right. So there's a scientific publication of which you're an associate editor, I believe. Outside of your clinical expertise, what sort of 
surprising or worrying papers is, is this journal publishing? If you can give us a couple of examples, maybe it'll help get people take things seriously. Just as an aside, you know, I live in, in the UK now, as before, we're not a country renowned for our sunshine, but the weather has definitely changed here. Now, the climate has changed so much so that the south of England is now apparently one of the premier regions for growing champagne grapes, or I should say method champenoise grapes, better than, than the area of France where they were previously grown. So this is very real. So tell us a bit about the journal. So it's a relatively new journal. And so we started three years ago and I was tapped to be among the original editorial board and am now an associate editor of the journal. And we really are meant to be the home for any topic that relates to climate change and human health or the practice of medicine. So when you read our journal, it's it's incredibly broad and very multidisciplinary. And I think it's a really great resource for people who want to learn more about how climate is impacting health. And when you talk about articles, I mean, we've, we've published a lot on healthcare sustainability and carbon footprint. And there's a lot of focus in our journal as well regarding promoting curriculum for medical students and physicians worldwide. If climate change is going to be the largest health crisis facing us this century, we have an obligation to create a climate literate healthcare workforce. And so many of the articles focus on that. And then you have as well, many that look at how climate change impacts health in different organ systems. And for me, I think some of the more alarming studies are the ones that show the impact on neurologic disease, especially dementia, mental health disease, and cardiac and pulmonary disease. So those are the ones that, that keep me up at night. I would say that climate change is very much within the lane of physicians because of its widespread impacts on health and not only that, but also our contributions to it in the care we deliver and the gross inequities in how climate is impacting health locally within our communities, but also globally. But, but how do we look during the COVID uh, pandemic? I, I write articles for, a, I'm not going to mention the organization, uh, but it's health issues for a, a given group of people. And I talked about COVID and vaccination and herd immunity and things one could do. And not only did I got, get hate mail, I actually got death threats from people saying that I was a communist and I was a this and that and the other. And that this was all, you know, the normal conspiracy nonsense. How do we as doctors tackle what is, I fully accept it's a health issue, but it's perceived by many as a political issue, obviously because of the implications for oil and such like. But how do we, how do we tackle that, Eva? I don't know that I have the answer for that. I, I find it very disheartening and incredibly frustrating and quite frankly, frightening that science has become politicized and the gross amount of misinformation that exists 
not just in dark places and corners, but now is relatively mainstream. I think what we can do as physicians is continue to center our patients and our communities and the health of the population. And I think we can present the facts and constantly present data. And I think if we stick to facts and data, we have perhaps a way to navigate into into a future where science is is valued and trusted again. Yeah, well, keep banging away, I reckon. So let's focus on one particular issue uh, that you, you, you recently published an article on how climate change impacts atopic dermatitis and mental health comorbidities, particularly with vulnerable and marginalized populations. Can you dig into that for us? Absolutely. So I think it's really important to understand that inflammatory diseases of the skin often go hand in hand with a number of comorbidities, including cardiovascular and metabolic comorbidities. But importantly, mental health disease is very common with inflammatory diseases of the skin. And it's perhaps twofold in the sense that when you wear your disease outwardly for everyone in the world to see, there can be stigmatization and alienation, and that can contribute to low self-esteem, depression, and other mental health diseases. But likely there's a biochemical explanation as well that relates to the cytokine profile of these inflammatory diseases and direct impacts on brain chemistry and contributions to mental health from a truly organic standpoint as well. And so because mental health comorbidities are so common in atopic dermatitis, and there's been a lot of research looking at mental health and climate change and the impacts of heat and stress and and migration and loss of homes, uh, loss of loved ones because of extreme weather events, and now a growing body of evidence linking atopic dermatitis severity and exacerbations to a multitude of climate impacts. I thought it would be really interesting to examine the intersectionality of those three topics. And what we found was that not only does climate change impact atopic dermatitis, which then can flare mental health disease, it's bi-directional. Climate change can also impact mental health disease, which can then flare atopic dermatitis. And so you have this rather complicated, vicious cycle that can occur with those comorbidities in the setting of atopic dermatitis and climate impacts. Hmm. I, our, our audience, either are primarily doctors and other healthcare uh, practitioners, but a lot of other interested folk uh, listening. So what can all of us do? I've, I've hinted at the political issue of depoliticizing climate change. What can we all do to minimize climate change and protect ourselves other than, you know, the, the commonly talked about stuff about minimizing how much we consume, thinking about buying local, um, you know, uh, food grown locally and, and thinking about our carbon footprint? What, what sort of things would you recommend to people? I think a lot of a lot of physicians, a lot of people who are in healthcare and public health are already doing many things within their personal lives, but they don't necessarily think to translate those efforts 
professionally. And I would encourage everyone who is in medicine to do so. When you look at the carbon footprint of healthcare, it's very carbon intensive and we're responsible for about 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the United States is even worse. Our healthcare sector contributes 10% to greenhouse gas emissions within the U.S., and we contribute 25% to healthcare-related greenhouse gas emissions globally. And so regardless of where you reside, if you're a physician that's practicing medicine, you are contributing to climate change purely by delivering care, which is rather counterintuitive considering that we're here to treat disease um, so and to mitigate effects from climate change. So I would encourage everyone to take meaningful steps to decarbonize how they deliver care. And that can mean many different things. Um, it would depend on the, on the context of where you practice and your specialty. But dermatology, for instance, is rather carbon intensive. We have a, a large number of equipment that we use. So we have uh, we pull a lot of energy and we're very procedural. So there's a lot of waste generation that is involved. But other specialties are going to be unique and different. But there's a grand opportunity for all of us as physicians to decarbonize our practices and advocate for decarbonizing our healthcare systems. And then I think physicians can be vocal, educate your patients about climate impacts on health. Educate your colleagues, educate your community. And lastly, research. We need more research into understanding how climate is impacting health and disease and the ways that we can adapt and mitigate this in the future. You know, I, I'm, I had a guest on the podcast uh, quite a while back who was a radiologist. And one of the things that he'd done is worked out that leaving the x-ray machines turned on overnight when they weren't needed was a waste of energy. So it was cost saving and it was green. And then, you know, putting in, you know, demanding that the hospital management put in lights that automatically go off and all those sort of things. I think we can because hospitals, you know, I think as a surgeon, the huge amount of paper waste from dispo you know, disposable sterile packaging that we could be much more, much more thoughtful in all of these areas. So for the next question, I, ha I had to do a little bit of retro reading. I knew the name. I couldn't remember for the life of me anything about Chagas disease. And in 2011, you published an article discussing how globalization is causing cases of this, uh, this disease, which is normally found in poorer areas of the Americas, I believe, that it was emerging in non-endemic areas. So could you please start with a primer on Chagas disease, <laughs> primarily for me, and now after a decade after that article, are dermatologists still finding cases? How can we reduce the chances of further issues with this condition? And frankly, globalization is, is going to, I think, increasingly cause uh, diseases from far-flung corners of the earth to find their way into other populations, right? Absolutely. Yes, no, you're totally right about that. So Chagas disease is also called American trypanosomiasis, and it is a parasitic vector-borne disease. It's caused by the parasite trypanosoma cruzi. 
and it's transmitted by the reduvid bug. And yes, you're, you're absolutely correct in that it is a neglected tropical disease and historically has been a disease of poverty and rural populations in South and Central America. But we're seeing increasing urban and peri-urban transmission in those regions. And importantly, now global distribution secondary to migration. So understand that most cases are asymptomatic and it is a lifelong disease unless it is treated. And for that reason, we're seeing cases popping up in far-flung areas where Chagas is not endemic. And now there are large pockets within Europe, Australia, Japan, and in the United States. For 30% of people who do develop chronic sequelae, and the latency is very long, 10 to 30 years, um, it's very serious. They have denervation of parasympathetic nerve fibers that leads to heart disease, including conduction abnormalities and dilated cardiomyopathy, GI complications, most notably megacolon and megaesophagus, as well as other neurologic complications. And the other interesting thing is that there's actually vertical transmission of Chagas disease from infected asymptomatic mothers, potentially to their children. So because of migration, we're seeing Chagas disease now globally but despite this, there's really poor recognition of this infection in non-endemic regions and overall a lack of mandatory screening for blood and tissue donors. And so being bitten by the reduvid bug is not the only means of transmission. It can also be transmitted through blood transfusions and organ transplantation in addition to transplacentally via vertical transmission from mother to child. And so I reported a case, the, the article that you're referencing uh, was reactivated Chagas disease in a transplant patient. And he actually was received a cardiac transplant for dilated cardiomyopathy. And it was undiagnosed Chagas disease. And once he was put on immune suppression, he had a massive reactivation of his parasitic infection and almost died. Um, but fortunately, we were able to make the diagnosis based on his cutaneous findings and identifying the parasite within skin specimens and treat him. So uh, fortunately, he did well. But because of the reactivation in the setting of immune suppression and the risk of vertical transmission, it, it's an under-recognized disease that, that definitely deserves more attention. Okay, it's fascinating. So um, changing topics a wee bit, skin color. How does that influence skin presentations of uh, dermatologic conditions? Great question. And I think this parlays some into DEI work within the space of dermatology. So when you have dark skin, inflammatory skin diseases can look different. Erythema is hard to appreciate on very dark skin. And when it does present, it may have a more violaceous appearance than you might see on fair skin. And so understanding how common inflammatory diseases can look different on different skin tones is really an essential diagnostic skill in dermatology. But unfortunately, there's been a tremendous amount of inequity in representing skin of color within dermatology curriculum and within our textbooks and atlases. And that's overall contributed to 
poorer outcomes in skin of color, less recognition and delay in appropriate treatment. So there's many efforts, not only within the U.S., but broadly globally to to really write that. And when you think about it, the vast majority of the world has skin of color. And so images representing darker skin tones should predominate our textbooks and atlases, not the way that it's currently currently is and historically has been with uh, white skin predominating the photos in those atlases. And uh, I guess there's implications for, for dermatologists working in areas with changing populations. I was just seeing that in, in, in my hometown of London, uh, roughly 40% of the population are, are, are black or Asian. So, you know, with changing populations, this, when I moved to America, I had to get used to seeing some conditions that I hadn't seen training in Britain, Lyme disease, for instance, and sadly, gunshot injuries. But uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. So uh, that leads nicely into my next question. Your, your role as lead for diversity, equality and inclusion. What, what does that entail? So it's a relatively new position for me in dermatology. At Vanderbilt, we have a very robust DEI program and an office dedicated to this. And it's very important, not only in dermatology, but in medicine in general, uh, that we have a diverse workforce. With diversity comes greater creativity, greater innovation, greater problem solving. And so from a very practical standpoint, it is really diversity enriches our ability to deliver healthcare in a culturally sensitive and successful and effective manner. In dermatology specifically, there's many studies looking at the color, the skin color of the physician versus the patient. And patients with dark skin respond better and have better outcomes when their physician looks like they do. So our efforts in dermatology with DEI are broad. It, some of it is based on health equity and access to care, but some of it is also creating pipelines to improve diversity within our specialty and recruit a broader range of individuals to uh, practice within our faculty. And we do a lot within our department and community to try to um, improve cultural awareness. So um, that's an interesting point. Outcomes are better when the doctor looks like the patient. At least, it, at least in dermatology. In dermatology. Yeah, I'm just wondering about other specialties and not really thought about that. I, I think in a prior podcast, I talked to someone about a book I'd read donkeys years ago called The Doctor, the Patient and the Illness. And it was all about the caring aspect of healthcare and how we interact with the people we're privileged to try and help and how just how just simple things like instead of sitting across a desk, I, I used to sit next to my patients when, when talking to them and the benefit of physical touch, just putting your hand on someone's arm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So my final question for you, if you were to come across, well, let's say you, you, were, you were sort of guddling about on a beach looking for interesting rocks and you unearthed uh, under the sand, a, I don't know, what do you call it, a, like a vase, uh, a lamp. There we are, that's the word I was looking for. 
table and you pulled it out of the sand and you gave it a bit of a polish and out popped a genie who granted you three wishes in dermatology in your areas of interest, what would you wish for? Well, I, I tend to be incredibly idealistic. So um, I, I think I'm going to shoot for the moon here. And, go for and it. Go, go for it. Go big or go home. So I think first off, of course, I would ask the genie to reverse the effects of climate change. I think secondly, I would ask the genie to provide access to quality dermatologic care for every human being on the planet in an effort to try to limit health inequities that we currently battle. And then number three, it's back to what we talked about earlier with misinformation and especially within the United States, I would ask the genie to eliminate hate and divisiveness. Yeah, wouldn't that be something you look at uh, the world we live in at the moment and the health threat caused by um, uh, caused by hatred? My goodness. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, listen, I asked the question because I like to provoke idealism. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Eva Parker, for taking the time to share your insights and, frankly, for everything you're doing to heal the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So, folks, please subscribe to the EMJ podcast so you never miss an episode. Check out the archives for the fascinating prior shows and join us again next week for yet another episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackier, and please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye.